Well, as we uh, come to this uh, study here in our ongoing study in the book of uh, John here in the sixth chapter, um, ultimately the story before us, as I've been telling you, is a story about truth rejected. Uh, Verse 66 says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so he asked the question, as a result of what? Well, it really refers back to everything that he's just been saying, everything that he said, everything that he's done throughout the chapter. So as I've told you, the chapter really is about those who once followed Christ, but yet they've abandoned him. They walked away from him. And and I told you the reason that uh, uh, these people and others who claim to be one-time followers of Christ uh, eventually walk away from him is his words. Uh, Look again uh, down to verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. The words uh, that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 65, and he was saying... For this reason I have said to you, again, verse 66, as a result of this, as a result of his words, right? Many of the disciples withdrew and were not walking with him uh, any longer. Now, the words specifically in this chapter concerning uh, concerning him or, or his uh, exposition of the great sermon that he is uh, uh, putting forward here where he refers to himself as the bread of life. It's a sermon that starts in verse uh, 32, goes all the way down through verse 60. And in that sermon, Jesus talks about his uh, death, his resurrection. He tells the people who are listening to him that they must all follow him. They must believe upon his person. They must believe who he is. They must believe that he is the Holy One of God, God come in the flesh. They must believe in his atoning substitutionary death and then his subsequent uh, resurrection. And at the same time, he tells them what they must believe. He's also condemning their false religious system, uh, a religious system that will not provide for them life, but a religious system that will lead them into eternal condemnation. So he speaks to the necessity of them abandoning their false religious system of Judaism that promotes work salvation. So as a result of his works, or as a result of his words, uh, many people are going to forsake him. Many people are going to turn away from him. Many people will no longer walk with him. And I said uh, several times already in our study that uh, this chapter, again, about true and false followers of Christ True and false defectors or, or false followers of Christ defectors, uh, again, is something that you, you see uh, quite often. Uh, true uh, followers or false followers of Christ will follow Christ for a period of time, and then ultimately they will turn away from him. They will fail to worship him. They'll fail to acknowledge him for who he truly is. On the other hand, true followers of Christ will follow him. They'll follow him. They'll fall down before him. They'll worship him. They recognize him as God's son, the Christ. Uh, they love him. They follow him again no matter what, even his words that are sometimes difficult because it's his words that have set them free and they know them. So again, the words that Christ speaks, he says they're spirit and they provide eternal life. So Christ says, you reject what I say, you're going to condemn yourself forever. If you believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, come to him and receive what he has, uh, you'll uh, receive eternal life. It really is that simple. And sadly, as we know, the truth is that many people, most people, in fact, reject Christ. Uh, the vast majority of people will reject God's free offer of the gospel, God's free offer of grace, uh, of eternal life through Christ, and they exchange that for a false religious system that does nothing except condemn. Again, I've told you this several times. The entire world is trying to work their way to heaven. The entire world, through religious systems, are trying to work for what God gives absolutely free. It's absolutely free. And again, there's nothing new under the sun. It's from the t- time we're in the studying here in the book of John, even into our day. This is always the way it is. It's always the way it has been. I mean, there are, again, many false followers of Christ. Many false followers of Christ, false disciples who will ultimately be driven away from him by the truth. Uh, Just like here in Capernaum, in uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, the Gospel becomes offensive to them. The Gospel becomes a stumbling block. It's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen? It's the power of God into salvation. I was just talking to someone yesterday and saying, you know, think about your own life. You know, uh, before you came to Christ, the moment before you came to Christ, the day before you came to Christ, it made no sense to you. It was nothing but foolishness. And God in his kindness opened your eyes to the truth and what you thought was once foolishness became the most wonderful news you'd ever heard in your life. Right? It's just that instantaneous. It's coming from death to life. And that's what God does through his word. Now, last time we worked our way through about verse 37 here in this chapter. But let me just, again, very quickly set the scene for us. You remember that Christ has just performed that miracle. He's fed at least the 5,000, if not more, uh, in the evening. And the, and the morning comes, and the crowd's seeking him because they'd like breakfast. He's giving them dinner, and they want breakfast, right? Christ, who ultimately knows all men's hearts, says to them, the only reason that you guys are following me 
is not even for the supernatural or the miraculous, the spirit, the, 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 uh, the miraculous event that you saw, but the simple reason you're following me is for the loaves and the fishes, right? You were, you were filled. You had your bellies filled. That's why you came. That's why you're interested. You're not interested in following him, or Christ says you're not interested in following me for salvation. You're not interested in worshiping me. You just want more food. So Christ in his kindness really is trying to turn their attention away from the physical to the spiritual. But ultimately at the end of the story, the crowds are going to reject him. They're going to reject him. They're going to reject his teaching. Verse 30, again by way of review. Uh, they said therefore to him, what do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? Uh, what work do you perform? Remember I told you this is really an, an incredible, unbelievable request. In spite of what they had already seen the day previously. All the numerous miracles because he spent all day healing them healing them, healing their, their loved ones. And then in the evening, he fed them. The multitude, he fed them out of nothing. He just kept producing food. And now here in verse 30, they're brazenly demanding another miracle to prove uh, that he indeed is the one who's sent from God. Now, we'll just back away from the story for a moment and ask ourselves the question, well, who do you know in your realm of friends that has the miraculous power to heal people instantaneously? Who do you know in your realm of uh, friends that you kind of hang out with during the week? has the ability to produce not something out of nothing, who may, has a creative power, creative miracle to just feed not 5,000. I told you it's probably somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 people, and there's more left over. I mean, this is ridiculous. It, it's really ludicrous. And I told you, it really is nothing more than shameless unbelief, this request. It is rank, bold-faced unbelief. Uh, again, his numerous healings, plus the miraculous of feeding just the day before, the evening before, are proof of his deity. But I told you this also, that unbelief is never satisfied no matter how much evidence is produced. Unbelief is never satisfied no matter how much evidence is produced because it's not a lack of evidence that keeps people away from Christ. It's a lack of a desire in the heart. That's the truth. It's not an evidentiary issue. People say, well, if I just saw a miracle. No, that's not true. The Bible's full of miracles. It's not what you see. It's what goes on in your heart is the issue. People are not... Uh, uh, they are failed to be convinced not because of a lack of evidence it's because of the hardness of the heart verse uh, 31 they say the crowd our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written and they gave uh, he gave them bread out of heaven so again the unbelieving crowd is making a false comparison between the lord jesus christ and moses they're challenging him in essence saying well you you know you're, you're pretty good but you're really not as good as moses right i mean all you did is you performed a miracle uh, one time, but Moses, you know, he fed the people of Israel for 40 years. So Jesus is going to rebuke the crowd. He's going to correct them for their misunderstanding of the Old Testament text and their misunderstanding of the issue of manna that was given to God's people in the wilderness. Verse 32, Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not uh, Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Uh, again, these people failed to understand it. Moses didn't give bread to anybody. You know, all, all Moses did was tell the people how to gather it. All Moses did was simply re relay God's instructions to the people. It was God himself who fed his people bread from heaven. Right? It was God himself who fed the people bread from heaven, manna, in the past. And it's God who now presently desires to feed people who will come to him at, at this very moment, presently. So the manna of the past only took care of the physical needs of the people uh, of God. Now God is offering through the person of Jesus Christ the true bread the true bread out of heaven. It is my Father, again, verse 32, it is my Father who gives you, in its present tense, it is my Father who now gives you the true bread out of heaven, verse 33, for the bread at, the bread which is uh, of God is that which comes down out of heaven, and it gives life to the world. Remember I told you the word life there is zoe, it's not bios, not like biology, like the uh, physical life, it's zoe, it's spiritual life. So the bread that God is offering to the world that comes down out of heaven doesn't just give life to the nation of Israel, it actually gives life to the world, spiritual life to the entire world. So again, the manna that God gave in the past, again, only sustained the physical needs of the nation of Israel and their well-being. The bread that now God is offering to the world gives to the entire world spiritual life, eternal life, eternal life for every member of Adam's family who would eat of it, Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Verse 34 they said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now, again, the crowd doesn't understand what the Lord is saying. They're still trapped in this kind of physical, materialistic thinking. They don't get the metaphor. They don't get the analogy, the picture that Christ is trying to teach uh, 
uh, taking a physical analogy and trying to teach a spiritual truth. And ultimately, uh, we, we know that because they're going to refuse to acknowledge him, right? They're, they're going to they're turn away from him. They don't understand what he's offering to them. They don't receive him in the salvific sense as the one who's co-equal with God, their only hope of salvation. All they want from him is what they can get from him. All they want from him is uh, uh, for him to continue to provide for their physical needs. They have no desire for him on a personal level. The psalm I read this morning talks about the psalmist desiring God, right? Panting for God, thirsting for God. Not for what God could give him, but what God, but God in his person. And the crowd has none of that kind of desire. They don't desire him. They're not interested in him. They're really not even interested in his saving mercy. They're only interested in Christ to the level that he'll provide their physical needs. So again, whatever kind of followers they are, they're shallow, temporary followers of Christ. They are natural men who do not understand or accept the things of the Spirit of God because spiritual things are foolishness to them. The truth is, the true bread that comes down from heaven is a person. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Again, Jesus, speaking in the first person, uses that familiar phraseology to the ears of the Jewish people. Uh, I am, identifying himself as the God of the Old Testament, the one who's co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, which he has said several times because he's repeated that phrase. He said that he is the bread that has come down out of heaven. The bread that comes down out of heaven speaks about his pre-existence. It speaks to his eternal reality. It speaks to his deity. It speaks to the one who uh, uh, existed in the everlasting presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Eternal God come in the flesh. That's who he is. Again, Jesus said, I am the bread of life who comes, or he who comes to me, verse 35, he who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So the verbs comes and the word, the verb believe, these are vitally linked, right? Coming and believing is the only appropriate response when God stands in your presence. It's that simple. That's the only appropriate response. You come and you believe. And hungering and thirsting for righteousness, uh, he who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. He's talking about, again, spiritual truth, hungering and thirsting. He's really talking about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Uh, again, it's the metaphor that Christ used over in Matthew 6, referring to that need, that intimate need to know God on a personal level, to, to receive a righteousness that we do not possess on our own. And so Christ is offering himself to them as help, as hope. Really, mankind's only hope of eternal life. But most men, because of their pride, are self-satisfied. Most men fail to come to Christ because of the hardness of their heart. And most men fail to come to Christ because they don't see their need of righteousness that Christ alone provides. Therefore, they see no need of Christ. I'm good. That religious stuff works for you. I'm fine. Just leave me alone. I I don't need that stuff. That's the self-righteous man in the hardness of his heart. I don't need Christ. But the truth is, while men spend their entire life trying to seek happiness, until men seek righteousness over happiness, they're really condemning themselves. And they're assuring their misery both in time and eternity. I'm going to say that again. The whole world wants happy, right? Turn on any advertisement on TV. Tell me the last time you saw an advertisement on TV that was still in you sadness, sorrow, a bad life, and how to screw your life up even more. Everybody's selling you happiness. You'd be really happy if you bought this car. You'd be really happy if you wore this dress, if your hair looked like this, if you had some hair, you'd be very happy. Right? The whole world's peddling happiness. But until the world seeks happiness or seeks righteousness over happiness, all the world continues to do is condemn themselves. They condemn themselves. They assure their misery in time. If all that stuff worked, they'd sell it once and they'd never have to sell it again. But they're hawking it all the time, a different car, a different, different color, a different size, a different, right? Because it doesn't work. You know, you drink this uh, alcoholic beverage and your life's going to be wonderful. You drink this alcoholic beverage and the truth is you're probably going to become an alcoholic, lose your house, your family, and everything that you hope for, right? The world's peddling lies. The Bible peddles truth. The Bible doesn't peddle truth. The Bible proclaims truth. The Bible proclaims truth, right? Until men stop seeking happiness, until they start seeking righteousness, they're just adding to their misery in time and eternity. So Christ puts himself forward as the bread of life. He says, look, I am alone, the only one, right? I'm the one, the, the one and the only one who can satisfy your deep spiritual needs in your soul. 
but men have to come to him. Right? Men have to come to him and men have to believe upon him. Men have to sense their need of forgiveness, their sense of a, 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 a sense their sin, their need of forgiveness, and their need of righteousness, and then they have to fly to Christ. Right? They have to go to him and not allow anybody to stop them from getting to him. They got to forsake their old life of sin and rebellion against God. They've got to take Christ in completely. They have to uh, entrust themselves completely to him as who he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, and acknowledge the fact that, again, salvation comes to men only through him, by faith alone, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible promises for the man or the woman who does that, they'll be forever satisfied. They'll never die a spiritual famine. They'll never perish for want of the soul, because Christ is the all-satisfying one. But here again, Jesus rebukes the crowd because the truth is, verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me, but yet you do not believe. Right? You've seen me, but you don't believe. Again, sadly, this is just nothing more than willful unbelief. These people cannot see who it is who stands in front of them. Right? They cannot understand who this one who has just just charged this uh, compassionate power, this miraculous power in front of them, who he is. And again, ultimately, they don't care. Ultimately, they're not interested in him. They're not interested in him. They're not interested in the spiritual life that he provides and freely offers. They're only interested in having their physical needs met or only interested in what he could do for them on a physical level. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So again, Christ is making a passionate appeal to come, to to believe for eternal life. Again, words that no mere man alone could make, words again that point to the reality of that their religious system cannot save. Come to me, believe upon me. Because again, salvation comes to men freely as a gift of God's grace, freely through Jesus Christ and him alone. So it's Jesus Christ is the heavenly bread who's come down, who alone has that power to save, the power to save, the power to secure every sinner, the power to satisfy every sinner, who will come to him by faith alone. It's the same uh, words said a little bit different, but it really is the same words that he said back in John 3.16. Christ speaking, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is free to whoever wants it, to whoever believes. The Bible, in fact, concludes with these words in chapter 22, the book of Revelation, it's the words of an open invitation. Revelation 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. Every sinner is invited to come to Jesus Christ. Every sinner is invited to turn away from their sin and to turn to Him and to believe upon Him for eternal life. And then we know, based on the Scripture, based on His own words, that He'll welcome you freely without any hesitation, with open arms. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your life has been like. Jesus said again, verse 36, I say to you that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Again, their rejection is inexcusable. And their rejection really is a sharp contrast to the one that he desired because he wants men to come to him and to be saved. And again, these people reject Christ not because of lack of evidence for believing upon him, the truth is, all men who reject Christ do so. The Bible says, uh, John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, that people reject Christ because they love darkness rather than light. They love darkness rather than light. The truth is, all, all of us, apart from God, apart from Christ, are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2. We can't understand spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2. Because Satan has blinded their minds, blinded their eyes to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. People love darkness rather than light. Christ comes into the world, he exposes them. You either run from the light or you run to the light. In John chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus asks the unbelieving Jews, he says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Then he answers his own question. He says, John 8 and 43, it is because you cannot hear my word. It's because you cannot hear my word. He didn't say you will not hear my word. He says you cannot hear my word. That's why in verse 44 here of this chapter, chapter 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He says the same thing in verse 65 of chapter 6. 
He was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Because of sin, men can't come. Men won't come. Because of sin, it's impossible for anyone to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from God's kindness and opening their blind eyes to receive the truth. Romans 3 and 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God or none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. That's the universal condition of all mankind. Commentator Leon Morris writes this. He says, people do not come to Christ because it seems to them to be a good idea. He says, it never does seem like a good idea for the natural man. Apart from the divine work and their souls, men remain contentedly in their sins. Right? If God in his kindness doesn't open our heart to receive the truth, take the blinders off our eyes to see, we're happy in our sin. We're happy in our rebellion. So men can't come because of sin. Men won't come because of their sin. Yet the Bible still says that God holds men responsible for their unbelief. Right? They can't come, they won't come. The Bible holds men responsible for their unbelief. So how can anybody be, be, how can anybody be saved? And again, it's only because of God and his great infinite kindness, his mercy, his love. He opens the heart of the unbeliever to God's goodness, to God's compassion, to God's love. Verse 37. Christ says, all the Father gives him, right, is going to be saved. Verse 37. All the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast down. Now, I don't know if you knew that before, but this verse is a monumental verse. Right? All the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast down. Again, verse 37 declares that man's unbelief right, will not prevent God's purposes from being carried out. Again, there's many people in the crowd who um, don't believe, won't believe. They remain in their unbelief. But there's some who will come to saving faith. And, and God himself is going to make sure that happens. Remember, I, I think I ended the sermon last week asking because of the the rejection of the crowd, does that mean that Christ's mission failed? And the answer is no. Because God's going to carry out his purposes in spite of mankind's unbelief. And Christ has confidence, again, that his mission hasn't failed, that he will bring men and women to repentance and faith, and his, his confidence is based solely in God's omnipotent sovereignty. Again, look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come. All that the Father gives me shall come. So again, it's a straightforward um, statement of Christ's belief and confidence in the doctrine of election. All whom the Father gives to the Son. All, again, the collective body is really talking about the church. Those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1, uh, verse 4, will come to Christ. Now, we've talked about this several, I mean, numerous times from this pulpit, right? Two sides of this issue. From the standpoint of human responsibility, Acts 17.30, God is now declaring to men, uh, to men that all people everywhere should repent. John 3.16, I just read it. Christ says, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, uh, Romans 10.13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2.21 says the same thing. It shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So on one side of the equation is the responsibility of man to come to believe, to come to Christ. On the other side of the responsibility is the deadness of mankind in sin. And the reality that salvation is ultimately not dependent upon the human will, but it's ultimately dependent upon God. John chapter 1, verse 13. The redeemed are defined there as those who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, Jesus' own words here in this text in just the last few verses indicate that, again, salvation is God's work, not man's work. He's called men to believe, not to work. He's called men to believe, to receive freely the bread from heaven that God gives as the Father offers Christ to men. Romans 9, 6. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Ephesians 2, you're familiar with that passage. I mean, and it is just so simplistic in what it says. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Again, stop and ask yourself, the last time you saw something dead and tried to speak to it, to command it to do something, the dead dog that's laying alongside the road, to get up, to roll over, to speak, to fetch, dead things cannot respond. 
And that's who we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Unable to respond to God. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself it is the free gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. God is absolutely sovereign over the realm of salvation. That's a foundational, fundamental, biblical truth. Not just a Calvinistic truth, it is a biblical truth. And the problem that men reject that or revolt against that is because of pride. Because they're not reading what the Bible says, and they think they have somehow within them, they who are dead before God, they who are not part of that category of no one seeks after God, somehow they're different, and they did. You need to understand what the Bible says, not what you were taught or what somebody thought you were taught or somebody told you a long time. What is the Bible saying? The Bible says that God is sovereign over the realm of salvation, but then that gives up my freedom. Come in the evening, I've been talking about that for months, right? You don't have any freedom, my dear friends. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And every person born into this world is a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. There are only two categories of people. That's what the Bible says. And I tell you this every single week because the Bible sets you free. False religious systems condemn. I don't care if it's Judaism or any other uh, abhorrent form of so-called Christianity. Biblical Christianity. God, you know what? If God can speak and he knows how to communicate, and I'll bet you he does, has written a book and told us the truth because he wants us to know the truth. Every week after you come and sit under the preaching of the word, you should say to yourself, you know what? That's exactly what it said. You should never walk away going, man, I don't know where he got that from, but it was interesting. No, you should go, that's exactly what it said, and that knowledge of the truth should drive you deeper into this book so that you might thirst for the living God, that you might know him better. God is sovereign over the realm of salvation. It is a foundational, fundamental, biblical truth of Christianity. Even repentance and faith are granted by God. Acts 11, verse 18. God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2, 25. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive uh, by him to do his will. Again, there's a statement on slavery. People who are not in Christ are being held captive by the devil to do his will. And unless God in his kindness opens their mind to the truth, their hearts to the truth, their eyes to see the truth and grants repentance, they're still going to be a slave of their own sin and a slave of the devil himself. So again, repentance and faith are granted by God. Again, otherwise no one's going to come. Again, Romans 3. There is no one who seeks for God. None. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not works. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is the gift of God. You want free life here this morning? You came in, I don't know what's going on in your life. You don't know, you don't have eternal life. You don't know the person of Jesus Christ. Absolutely free. Absolutely free for you. Came on a good day. It's free absolutely every day, but it's absolutely free. Right? One commentator says this. Any system... Or any attempt by any system to make salvation dependent upon man or man's will is in in uh, effect an attempt to try to dethrone God. All the various theological systems, such as Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, are contrary to the clear teaching of the Scripture. That's true. Any attempt by any system to make salvation dependent upon man's will is in effect to dethrone God in the realm of salvation. John 6, 44. John 6, 65, Matthew 22, verse 14, Mark 13, 20, Acts 13, 48, Romans 28, 20 to verse 30, Ephesians 1, 4, Colossians 3, 12, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 2 Timothy 1, 9, 2 Timothy 2, 10, Titus 1, 1, James 5, 2, 5, 
1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 9, just to name a few verses, all say the same thing. They all speak of God's electing grace and salvation. The fact, again, that God is absolutely sovereign over the realm of salvation. John 6 and 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I raise him up on the last day. Last day, Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless. First Peter 2 and 9, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a, 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 nation, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a, God, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus says in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you, you see me and yet you don't believe. The unbelief of the spiritually dead sinner can never thwart the saving work of God. Because God has chosen in eternity past a bride for his son. And he is going to end time graciously and irresistibly call them to himself. And call them to his son. Verse 37, all the Father gives me shall come. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, the profound reality that we completely overlook in this issue of salvation is not only the fact that God is sovereign over the realm of salvation, because only God can awake the dead spiritually. Again, how many times have you talked to something that's dead and they've not responded to you? You don't have that power. I don't have that power. Only God can awaken the dead spiritually. What we completely miss, because we're so subjective, and this issue of salvation is that we who are saved are really a love gift from the Father to the Son. That, that's the whole history of redemption. The whole history of redemption is God is calling a redeemed body, in our ear, the church, the bride of Christ, and we are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Now, I'm going to take you on a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's going to be helpful. I'll bring you back. I won't lose you on the way. I want you to take your Bible, put a mark there, because obviously we're coming back to the book of John, but I want you to take your Bible and turn over to 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, I know there's Bibles there in the pew in front of you. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says there, verse 8, the end, it says God. Verse 9 says, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purposes and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus. And then he says, from all eternity. Right? God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, according to his own purpose, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Pros, uh, pros, uh, chronos ionis is the literal rendering. It literally means before time. So when did God call us? When did God call us according to his purpose, according to his own grace that he granted us in Christ Jesus? When did he do this? When did he begin to build his church? Uh, the King James says before the world began. If you have the NIV, it says before the beginning of time. The NAS says from all eternity. All right, turn over to Titus. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of uh, Christ Jesus, Titus 1.1, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. It's the same phrase back there in 2 Timothy 1.9. Prochronos Ionos. Before the ages began, before the world began, before the beginning of time. Now, very simple question. When did time begin? Time began on day one, right? It wasn't a trick question. You could have all answered that. So maybe you'll get the next one. Day one of creation. Right? When God separated the light from the dark, when he began the cycle of the light and dark phases, the world started spinning. That's when time began. It began on day one. 
when did God make the promise of eternal life? The God who cannot promise, or the God who cannot lie, when did he make that promise? The text says long before that, right? Long ages ago, before time. From all eternity, before day one. So the question is, who did he make this promise to? That could have been made to angels, because the angels are not eternal. Angels are also made in time. Godly, God certainly would not have made the promise to them, because we know from the Bible, angels are not the objects of salvation. Someone suggests, well, perhaps he made this promise of salvation to men. Couldn't have been, because they weren't yet created. So who did God, to whom did God make this promise of salvation? Well, if you start running through the list, the only person who's existent in eternity past is God himself. He's the only one left. So God himself made a promise to himself long ages before, before time's eternal. So the promise of salvation, the promise of eternal life, the promise of the church, the gathering of the church, is an inter-Trinitarian promise. It's a plan between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a plan between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Salvation and eternal life is a promise in the mind of the Godhead before the creation of the world. They themselves made this promise. They themselves made this plan. They themselves determined they would create man and they would redeem mankind, even knowing that mankind would rebel and save them, uh, save mankind from their sin. Now, why, why would they do that? Why create a world where you knew mankind was going to rebel? Why redeem mankind? And the answer comes because of the intertenitarian love that exists between the Godhead. The love between the Father, the Son, between the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Son and, the, and you know, the, the intertrinitarian love. One commentator writes it like this. He says, There was a moment in eternity where the Father determined to express his infinite and perfect love to the Son, and we understand that there is an intertrinitarian love, the likes of which is incomprehensible and inscrutable to us. But we know this about love. It gives. At some eternal moment, the Father desired to express his perfect love for the Son, and the way he determined to express that was to give to the Son a redeemed humanity as a love gift. A redeemed humanity whose purpose would be forever and ever throughout all of the eons of eternity to praise and glorify the Son and serve him perfectly. That was the Father's love gift. To express his love, he wanted to give a redeemed humanity. The writer says evidently the angels wouldn't suffice because in heaven, because that wouldn't suffice to be in heaven praising the Son because there were characteristics of the Son for which they could never praise him because they had never fallen and never could be redeemed. And because it's the nature of God to be gracious, he must manifest that grace and be exalted for it forever and ever. He wanted to give a love gift to the Son, so he predetermined to do that. Not only did he predetermine to do it, but he predetermined who would make up that redeemed humanity and wrote their names down in the book of life before the world began. And he said, this is the love gift I want to give to you, and they will forever and ever praise and glorify your name. Right, so God out of his love for Christ, God the Father out of his love for his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, determines to give him a gift, a bride, a redeemed humanity that will praise him forever and ever. So God sets out to create a universe and a world, and he creates man. Where this eternal love story can really play out. The fall happens. The eternal plan begins to take shape in time. Again, the plan to give to the Son a redeemed humanity, a bride, who will love the Son forever and ever and ever. Now again, because we tend to be so self-centered and so self-focused, most of us believe the plan of salvation primarily is about God saving us. And that's indeed part of it. If you were the only person who ever existed in all of time, God loves you so much that he would have created you and he would have... No, that's a bunch of trash. It's dribble. That's not the reason that God created the universe. You, my dear friends, and me, we happen not to be the center of the universe. That's a shocking statement for us to accept in our human-centered world in which we live in. And, and as a side note, I keep telling myself, don't go there, but I can't stop myself. The world's not going anywhere until God's done with it. You can go green, you can go pink, you can go yellow, you can go chartreuse, I don't care what you go, but you're not using up this planet until God's done with it. And God created this planet to carry out this eternal 
love story in time and it will be here until he's done with it and he will be the one who discards it because he created it. Don't listen to the nonsense. So because we've been told so much we're so wonderful and we're so focused on ourselves, so self-centered, we think we're the primary issue about salvation. It's not. We're obviously the beneficiaries. I'm not begging that point. We're beneficiaries of God's kindness. But the goal of redemption, the goal of the church, is to give to the Son a bride that will forever and ever praise and honor Him. And I'll prove that to you through the Scripture. I don't just make this stuff up. So when we begin to understand this truth and begin to understand the church properly, we're going to realize that God has called us as the redeemed into a grand affair as part of this calling out for Christ a bride. So the plan of God for the salvation of mankind, for our salvation... Yeah, the plan for the church is really a plan that goes way beyond us. And again, the church is the God calling out men and women out of the world to be a bride for his son, men and women whom he knows by name, men and women whose names he has written down before the foundation of the world. He's going to bring them to faith. He's going to bring them to godliness. And he's going to bring them all the way to glory to the end to be the bride of his dear son. Look at John chapter 6, verse 37. And you can see right there in the text, I didn't make it up, you can see there right in the text how Christ understood this. And Christ acknowledges the plan. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me. Right? There's the gift. There's the gift from the Father to the Son. All the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll certainly not cast out. Drop down to verse 44. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, part of that gift. And I'll raise him up on the last day. That's part of the gift. It's part of the the fact of irresistible grace that all who are called to Christ come to Christ. They are drawn to Christ by the Father. All who are drawn to Christ by the Father, uh, uh, who are drawn to uh, the Christ, are received by the Son. They're never lost. They're never cast out. That perfect love gift from the Father is embraced by the Son. They're kept. They're preserved. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me, I lose nothing. There's the gift. There's the eternal security of the believer. I lose nothing. I raise it up on the last day. Verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So again, the Father says to the Son, I want to give you a redeemed humanity. They're going to praise you and honor you and worship you and adore you throughout time and eternity. They're going to praise you and love you because you are going to be the one who enters into time, and you're going to be the one who secures their salvation. You're going to step into time You're going to take on flesh and you're going to become the Lamb of God, slain for them to win their salvation, their redemption. And as a result of that, forever and ever, they're going to sing, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Amen? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Right? So there's God's eternal plan of redemption. There's God's plan for for the salvation of mankind, for the church. He writes our names down in the Lamb's book of life. He does so before the foundation of the world. All whom God has chosen were written down before time began. The Father in time draws the sinner to Christ. The sinner responds to the call of God. He comes to Christ as a gift of God's love. Uh, Again, a, a redeemed humanity. When Christ receives that gift, that redeemed humanity from the Father, he keeps them safe and none of them are lost. He promises to raise them up on the last day. It's the doctrine of eternal security. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Christ is going to bring all who the Father gives him all the way to eternal glory. But to do that in time, Christ has to come and Christ has to suffer on the cross. And for a moment, as he's bearing the sin of the world, he he is separated from his Father when he has made sin for us. So, therefore, the communion with the Father and the Son that had never been broken, that had always been eternally enjoyed for a moment, is going to be broken. When Christ becomes our sin-bearer, So to make sure that nothing happens to the precious gift that God the Father has given to the Son of a redeemed humanity, Christ anticipating the cross, 
places the redeemed humanity back in the care of the Father as he prepares to go to the cross. Uh, Turn over to uh, John chapter 17. John 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to them who you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those who you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. You'll notice there that Christ makes distinctions between men, those of the world, and those whom you have given me out of the world, right? Because of God's electing love. On behalf of those who were chosen before the foundation of the world, out of the world, Christ is asking the Father to watch over them, to keep them safe as he goes to the cross, as he dies. And after he is resurrected and ascends back into the to heaven at the Father's uh, side. And he treats his departure as if it has already happened. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they had themselves are in the world. I come to you, Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scripture would be fulfilled. So the believers are kept safe, protected, eternally secure, held by Christ, now kept by the Father. Drop down to verse 24. Christ says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. I'll say it again, but the plan of salvation is so far beyond us, it's incomprehensible. Our salvation, the calling out of the church, is way beyond our personal issues. It's bound up in the eternal counsel, plan, and purposes of God. It's bound up in the eternal love of the Father for the Son. So again, God the Father desires to show God the Son his love. That, again, love gives. God determines, therefore, he's going to create a world in which man can live. It's going to be carried, God is going to carry out an eternal plan in time so that supreme love for his son is fulfilled. He's going to create a redeemed humanity, create a world, redeem a humanity that belongs to him, that he gives his life for, that are going to love him in time and love him all the way in and through eternal glory. Right? And when we are brought to glory, we're going to be made conformed to the image of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Romans eight twenty nine. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So as much as glorified humanity can be like incarnate deity, we're going to be like Christ. We're not deity. We're not God. But as much as glorified humanity can become like incarnate deity, we as glorified humanity are going to reflect the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ's glory forever and ever. And forever and ever, we're going to be praising his name. Forever and ever, we're going to be honoring him forever and ever and ever and ever, because we are God's love gift to his son. It's a tremendous story. Now go back to John 6, make sure you're there, right? John 6, verse 37. Again, Christ acknowledges this. All the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I'll certainly not cast out. So again, there's the eternal plan, right? Plus our eternal security. I'm not going to cast them out. Now again, we talked about this previously when it comes to the doctrine of election. Many like to argue that election, that the elect are those whom God gives to the Son are those who God knew somehow. He looked down at the quarters of time, right? And, and, and chose them 
by their own free will because he, he chose them because he knew that they would choose him. But again, that's just all completely opposite of what I just said. This plan happens way before mankind, mankind ever came onto the scene, right? The Bible again says that we wouldn't. God couldn't look down, he didn't, but he couldn't look down the corridors of time to see who would believe and that I'm going to elect him in time because the Bible says no one's going to believe. There's no one, again, Romans chapter 3, there's none who seeks after God. So all this kind of fallacious thinking is so much convoluted and so much more hard to get your mind around if you just believe what the Bible says. It seems pretty straightforward. God elects in eternity past those whom he elects because he's sovereign. God is sovereign over the realm of, uh, uh, realm of salvation. Any other model tries to rob God of his glory. Again, have you ever seen a dead person bring themselves back to life? I never have. Dead people don't have that power. People who are dead spiritually don't have that power. People who are dead spiritually can't provide themselves spiritual life. That's why Christ told Nicodemus back in chapter 3 of this book, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. I got it, Nicodemus. You're the teacher of Israel. You got all this theological stuff going for you. But you got to be born again. And that phrase means you must be born from above. Again, there's divine sovereignty in the realm of salvation. It's absolutely crystal clear in the Bible. Right? And again, it's very clear from the Bible, as we've just read, that God didn't make up this plan for the ages after he saw what sinful people would do. He made this plan up before the foundation of the world, before there was any man there to ask permission to do so. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. J.C. Rowell says this, of this unconditional statement of reality, says, we learn from these words <clears throat> that uh, the irresistible power of God's electing grace, all who are given to Christ shall come to him. No obstacle, no difficulty, no power of the world, the flesh, and the devil cannot prevent them. Sooner or later, they will break through all and surmount all. If given, they will come. Uh, and he says to the ministers of the, of the word, these, these are words of, of comfort, and they are, right? And when, when you understand this, it's, it's just tremendous truth. The irresistible power of God's electing grace Right? The irresistible power of God's love and grace doesn't mean that God gra- takes people and drags them kicking and screaming against their will to Christ. No one comes to Christ unwillingly. Because what, do- what God does is in, his, in his grace, in his irresistible grace, is he makes the sinner willing to come. He makes the sinner willing to come. Right? Uh, think of uh, Lydia uh, when Paul preached the gospel in Acts 16, 14. A certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God was listening, and here it is, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Again, if God hadn't opened her heart, she would not have responded favorably. Again, how many times had you heard the gospel previously to that one time you heard the gospel and received it positively? It's that same thing. It's God opening your heart to receive the truth. One commentator says this, if you believed in Christ, it's because the Lord opened your heart to believe. You believe because the Holy Spirit imparted new life to you apart from anything in you you believe because in his sovereign grace before the foundation of the world the father chose you in love to give to his son all whom the father has given to jesus certainly will be saved no sinner can thwart god's mighty will to accomplish his purposes right god is sovereign over the realm of salvation god's tremendously kind compassionate and merciful psalm 115 verse 3 says our god is in heaven he does whatever he pleases that's the god of the bible God is sovereign. God elects sinners in eternity past. God graciously, irresistible, irresistibly calls them in time to himself through his son. On the other hand, we've taught that although the ones who do come to Christ from God's viewpoint are given that sovereign power, the command of scripture nevertheless remains the same. The command of the scripture is to come. Again, human responsibility and divine sovereignty stand side by side in this issue of salvation. Divine sovereignty and salvation does not neglect the believer's responsibility to repent and believe. If men are saved, they're saved because of the electing grace of God. If men are lost, they're lost because they love their sin more than they love anything else. John 3 and 18. The words of Jesus Christ, he who believes in him is not judged, he does not believe in him, has been judged already. Here's why. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
This is the judgment. Light has come to the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. John six thirty six. Jesus said, You have seen me and yet you do not believe. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility, two parallel lines that never intersect, infinite lines that go on forever. From our minds, our finite minds, we don't understand it. I got it. I'm happy with that. It's a tension we can't resolve. It's a tension we can't solve. I'm happy with that. I'll just let God be God. I'll let the inscrutable remain so. Right? But the call of God is to repent. To come to faith in Christ. And that call of God is a genuine call. Dick Mayhew, I will remind you, says this. He says, to insinuate that the universal call of God, the universal call of the gospel cannot be a genuine on, call on God's part is nothing less than a blasphemous accusation from those who have exalted their own reasoning above God's revelation. God truly does call all to repentance and represents himself as sincerely desiring repentance of the world. So all of you are going to go, I, you know, I'm going to stand at eternity and say, I didn't come because I wasn't elect. You're not getting a pass on that one. You bear the responsibility. I'm standing in front of you. You've seen me and you don't believe. It's your choice. The reality is most men are unwilling to come. Everyone's born a sinner, right? Those who refuse the gospel of grace are going to get, listen, they're going to get exactly what they want, exactly what they desire, a godless, Christless eternity. Because the reality is nobody goes to hell against their will. Nobody goes to hell against their will. Those who refuse to come to God's free offer of salvation are going to end up justly paying for the penalty of their error for all eternity. You ask the rebellious sinner who rejects Christ, do you love Christ? Will you submit your life to him in time? Will you worship and serve him and adore him? And the answer is, I want nothing of that. And God says, okay, that's what you'll have in eternity. Now again, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That's true. It's a true statement that Christ will welcome anyone and everyone who comes to him. That That's not really what it's saying in context at the end of this verse. It's true. Whoever wants to come can come. But what he's really saying here in the context of the Father giving me, those who come I will certainly not cast out. Jesus is saying all the elect, all the Father gives him as that love gift are going to come. They're going to be kept. They're going to be preserved into eternity. So that's the, the hope of the end of that verse. He's talking again about our eternal security. That we're going to be kept unto eternity uh, all that the Father has given to the Son as a gift. Verse 38, for I have come down out of heaven or from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So again, I've come down out of heaven. It's another claim to pre-existence, a claim of deity. No mere man can make that kind of a statement in any kind of sense of reality or truth, but Jesus Christ is no mere man. So again, the success of Jesus' mission is not based on whether or not people respond to him. It's based on the fact that he's come down from heaven. And you see that phraseology repeated numerous times throughout this passage of Scripture. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what is the will of him who sent Christ? Well, it's to receive that love gift and to protect that love gift throughout all of eternity. D.A. Carson says, if anyone whom the Father gave to the Son doesn't make it to heaven, it would mean either that Jesus is incapable of performing what the Father commanded him to do or that he was flagrantly disobedient, both of which, he says, are unthinkable. So the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world for one purpose and one purpose only, that to fulfill the Father's will. But again, what exactly is the Father's will? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Again, it speaks of the eternal security of the elect, the final perseverance of the saints, as it's sometimes known. It is the Father's will that no one he has given to the Son should be lost. It is the Father's will that the Son should lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Again, no part of that elect group, no part of the Father's elect that he elected from eternity past given to the Son in time is going to be lost. 
but all are going to be raised to eternal life, eternal glory. One commentator says this, Jesus will keep us safe. Uh, uh, one commentator says this, this thought, the fact that Jesus is going to keep us safe till we're in eternity heaven, this thought is the greatest comfort of the believer as our assurance is not based on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his sure grip on us. I mean, that's a tremendous statement. It's not us hanging on to Christ. It's Christ hanging on to us. He's going to come. He's going to carry out the plan. So but what happened to the disciples at the end of the chapter that fell away? They never truly believed. They never truly believed upon Christ salvifically. Again, the whole point of John chapter 6 is false and true. False followers, true followers. They were false followers. They're following him only for what they get him on the physical level. They weren't following him for eternal life that he is offering to them through himself. Again, it's an amazing story. I was thinking about this week, just kind of backing away, setting my pen down, trying to take a big view of what's going on in this section of Scripture. You have the creator God of the universe calling those whom he has made to repent and to believe upon him for eternal life. And he is offering to them freely salvation if they'll come to him. But again, man lost in sin doesn't understand the reality of who's standing in his presence. Doesn't understand the reality of the one who's speaking to them the word of life. Doesn't understand the one who's literally physically in front of them, the bread of life, the bread from heaven. Because they're so trapped in the temporal so caught up in the physical, felt needs. They miss the most important aspect of their life and our life. They're standing before God. Because again, all of our standing before God, apart from repentance and faith in Christ, we're all eternally doomed. doesn't matter what car you drive or the color of your hair or the dress you just bought if you're eternally doomed. It's completely irrelevant, guarantee you doesn't matter how much fun you're having at the party drinking this certain adult beverage if you're eternally doomed, guarantee you. He's offering himself to the crowd, the eternal God who created them, the ones that are headed for eternal damnation. He who in salvation alone is found is offering himself, and they want breakfast. That's a crazy story. You go to church if you want to. But we're way past brunch. <laughs> way this guy talks, we might not even get to eat lunch or supper. A few months ago, I preached a sermon. I don't know if you remember. It was entitled, How to Go to Hell. It's out of John 5 and 40. It says, you are unwilling to come to me that you may have a life. And at the time I said, well, you know, some people might uh, take exception to that title because I mean, it doesn't seem appropriate that a pastor would preach a sermon entitled How to Go to Hell. But I said, well, on the contrary, it's entirely appropriate. Because the reality is nobody intentionally wants to go to hell. But hell's going to be full of sinners who have failed to repent and place their faith solely upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is going to be full of sinners. But those sinners who have repented and cried out to God for mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have responded to the gospel call, those who've come in repentance and faith to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, those whom God has promised through Christ to give them mercy and forgiveness, those whom Christ has promised never to let go of. That's true. That's an even crazier story. Said it numerous times throughout the study. I've said it numerous times this morning. Truth is simple. If you want eternal life, it's free. Come take it. Believe the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ, that he is God's own son, the only substitute for forgiveness of sin, and then inherit eternal life freely by God's grace. 
On the other hand, reject that truth, you'll pay for that error eternally. In a literal, physical place of eternal conscious torment, a place called hell, a place where there is, listen, there's no hope of ever escaping. A place of endless agony, remorse, and anger because those who are in that place are there because they have been deceived. They were deceived by their own sin, by thinking way too much of themselves and not thinking of Christ at all. They're deceived by their own sin and they're deceived by Satan themselves. And they're going to be in that place of eternal conscious torment forever with their conscious, their, their consciences accusing them because they had the opportunity to escape this eternal torment in time, but they refused to come to Christ in time. All the Father gives me shall come to me. The one who comes to me, I'll certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given to me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the will of my Father. Again, for Christ to receive sinners. This is the will of my Father, for them to have eternal life. And eternal life belongs to everyone, without exception, who beholds the Son. Everyone who looks upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And by faith believes upon him and him alone as their only hopes, their only means of salvation. The only means of forgiveness for their own sin. And the text says they're guaranteed by the Father to have their sin forgiven. Guaranteed by the Son to have eternal life. And guaranteed by Christ that he's going to raise them up on that last day. Now, this is a tremendous story. Tremendous. This is good news. This is what gospel means. This is good news. This is the bread of life himself, the Lord Jesus Christ presenting himself offering himself, calling men to love him and pursue him more than any kind of physical, temporal need that the world has to offer them. To look upon Christ, believe, and inherit eternal life. Just like in the Old Testament, you remember the story out of Numbers 21, when the serpent came out, the serpents came out, the people were bitten, and they were told to look upon the serpent and live. And the same thing is true for us. Look upon Christ and live. The story is that simple. Come to Christ, look upon Christ, believe, and inherit eternal life.